Today on Ag News Daily. For bringing in seasonal uh, help, so seasonal planting and seasonal harvest, but livestock carries every day. And so we were asking for the H-2A program to be reformed. So A, there's no cap, and B, there's no seasonality piece tied to it. Good afternoon and happy hump day from the Ag News Daily Podcast. It's Ashton Carr joined by Dawson Schmidt. Dawson, how's it going today? I'm doing pretty good. How are you, Ashton? You know, I've got to say I'm a little annoyed. I don't know if an elephant moved above my apartment or what, but the people who are up there have been causing a lot of racket the past couple of days, and I don't know what to say. I don't know if I should do anything. I liked my piece, but it looks like I've got a noisy neighbor now. Well, that's, that is never fun. It, I hope I do well when I move that this weekend and not have to worry about any additional noises, especially when I'm moving to a different neighborhood. So we'll all see how that plays out as well. Oh, man. Moving is not fun. I'm definitely going to be thinking about you this weekend. I've got a wedding to go to this weekend, so I'm going to be having fun, and you're just going to be moving boxes, and it's going to be hot, I assume. There's been some pretty hot weather up in your neck of the woods, huh? Yeah, today is supposed to hopefully be the peak of the hot week, and I'm hoping that's correct. But it sounds like things might come down a little bit as far as temperature, but I'll have to wait and see how bad it is when it actually comes moving time. Well, Dawson, not talking about moving time. I want to talk about the Olympics. Delaney and I have been talking about it a little bit. And really, she's been talking about it because I don't follow the Olympics a whole lot or very closely. But one of the Olympians is actually a dairy producer. So I thought that that was pretty cool. Yeah, it's definitely cool. You don't really hear much about that, I guess, in national news with athletes. Nope, definitely don't. But I thought it was very interesting. I can't remember her name. That's probably really bad of me, but I thought it was pretty interesting. And I wish the lady was on today so I could share that bit of news with her because I feel like it would excite her a little bit. But moving on, talking about some other news, Dawson, what do you have for us to kick things off today? Well, you mentioned to me that yesterday Delaney spoke that they were starting the wheat tour for the year. And so I kind of have some updates on those numbers for those that haven't seen it. So with scouts in the fields, they were starting to scout the Durham and the hard red spring wheat fields yesterday. And so with a lot of conditions, we already saw in the USDA crop report going on this week that only 9% of the Spring wheat crop is in good to excellent condition. That does not leave a a lot of room for, you know, a pretty record yield harvest, which we all know is not going to happen. But with the scouts in the fields this week, we're starting to see some numbers here. So yesterday, the tour made 100 stops in hard red spring wheat fields, calculating an average yield of 29.5 bushels an acre. And that's in comparison to spring spring wheat fields last year or sorry, excuse me, not last year because they did not have it due to the coronavirus pandemic, but the year before in 2019, they actually calculated that at 45.6 bushels per acre. And so they're seeing a dramatic uh, increase this year or decrease this year. And the same is actually going to go for the Durham wheat as well. So a lot of, you know, not so hopeful news coming around that time, but I think I did see something that it was less damaged than what they expected, but of course not good numbers to report. 
I'm glad to hear that it's not as much damage as they expected Dawson, but I'm still not anticipating a good, you know, final numbers once the tour has ended. I think, you know, drought obviously plays a big factor in that. And a lot of the places that they're going have continued in severe drought at that. So going to keep an eye out on those numbers and what's being reported. But other than that, I have some news concerning the beef checkoff as the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has upheld the district court ruling in favor of the beef checkoff. RCAF USA originally challenged certain mandatory assessments on cattle sales imposed by federal law that are used to fund advertisements for beef products. Back in 2020, a federal court ruled that the qualified state beef checkoff programs operated under a memorandum of understanding with the USDA do not violate the First Amendment and dismissed the lawsuit brought by RCAF. The agreements with qualified state beef State beef councils include Colorado, Florida, Hawaii, Indiana, Kansas, Maryland, Montana, Nebraska, Nevada, New York, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Vermont, Virginia, and Wisconsin. RCAF USA CEO Bill Bullard says, well, that they are disappointed in the final outcome. Their case did force the reform of the National Beef Checkoff Program. He said that these reforms are significant. They they corrected a longstanding violation, a violation of the First Amendment rights of cattle producers that we can be thankful for, that we at least made that positive step on behalf of cattle producers. Bullard says the case established that the beef checkoff operated for decades in violation of the Constitution, and the Secretary of Ag took steps to correct the violation by asserting more governmental control over speech of the various state beef checkoff councils through the recently executed Memorandum of Understandings. Bullard says that they were unable to get any traction for their argument that the MOUs were insufficient at the Ninth Circuit, but they do have another case pending in front of the district court in Washington, D.C., alleging that the USDA did not follow the law when it executed the MOUs. So I definitely will be following that case since this one just came to an end. For sure, Ashton, it sounds like a lot of stuff is still going on in the beef industry, which that comes to mind with just a quick note here is that the eggs or the Senate Judiciary Committee is going to be doing a hearing today. And that's, I believe, going right now at on right now as we're recording the podcast. And that's focusing a lot on increasing competition within the industry. And they're having multiple witnesses uh, at the committee talking about talking about competition. And some of those include uh, Iowa Cattlemen's Association, the National Farmers Union, Tyson Foods, JBS, Associated Wholesalers, Grocers, and Consumers Reports. So uh, they're kind of attacking this at the angle of all the producers, the processors, and the retail side. So uh, I don't really have any updates on that right now, but hopefully we'll have some for tomorrow. But just something going on right there. Well, I'm certainly glad that you're paying attention to that, Dawson. But another thing that I have been paying attention to today is some COVID-19 infected buffalo meat. It's been a topic of conversation on whether or not COVID-19 can be transferred in food. According to Cambodia, there might have been some infected buffalo meat coming out of India. 
India contested earlier today that Cambodia's claims that this buffalo meat was infected with COVID-19, saying that it exports the meat only after getting COVID-free certification. Earlier this week, Cambodia said that three out of five containers of frozen meat imported from India tested positive for coronavirus. India's Agricultural and Processed Food Products Export Development Authority, which comes under the Ministry of Commerce and Industries, said all the consignments of Indian buffalo meat are tested in accordance with international standards and sent only after COVID-19 free certification. India, of course, is the world's biggest exporter of buffalo meat, and they've been hit pretty hard by coronavirus, but new infections have fallen sharply in the last two months, which is some good news for the country. India continues to claim that they are very sure about the quality of their buffalo meat products. And I'm not exactly sure if Cambodia is going to come back with any other kind of claims, if they're going to cease exports or imports, I should say, from India. Going to follow this relationship closely because I think it's pretty interesting. Don't know if they actually did test positive. It was a, a false positive. I know that those things can happen, but I thought it was pretty interesting. I don't think we've had a story in quite some time talking about imports or exports being tested for COVID-19 and testing positive. So I think that this is pretty interesting, especially since we have been following the Delta variant pretty closely and seeing if the world is going to shut that down. So hopefully it doesn't come to that. But like I said, going to be watching out for stories similar to this. For sure, Ashton. It sounds like a lot of different things are appearing and people just don't know what to think about all of it. I know CDC is starting to update some masking guidelines going on again. And so there's a lot of different things going on as far as, you know, what we should be doing as a society, whether, you know, do we increase restrictions or let them be for now? And there seems to be a lot of hot debate over it. Well, Dawson, I just have one other piece of news to share with you today. The House Ag Committee has advanced an $8.5 billion disaster bill that would cover a wide range of producers' losses in 2020 and in 2021. The measure was approved on a voice vote yesterday, and coverage includes damage from the ongoing western drought, the 2020 derecho in Iowa, the the polar vortex that struck Texas in February, and wildfires that damaged California wine grapes. House Ag Chairman David Scott says that he's very proud of the bipartisan work on the disaster bill. He says that severe and unforeseen weather events wreaked havoc on crops and livestock throughout 2020 and have continued into the 2021 growing season. He says that he hopes and expects that as a committee, they can continue to focus on disaster relief and engage every opportunity available to strengthen the farm safety net and find a way to get immediate disaster aid out to farmers, ranchers, and foresters more quickly without delays. The legislation incorporates provisions of the Temporary Wildfire and Hurricane and Indemnity Program. The legislation would also make it easier for farmers to qualify for drought losses. This bill is expected to be part of a supplemental appropriations bill with the possibility of funding from a year-end spending measure. Yeah, it sounds like there's still a lot of uncertainty with that. But speaking of uncertainty, carbon is still looking for clarification on how, you know, carbon credits are going to be used. And that sparked different organizations to come out and do more research on that. Most namely, Iowa State University Extension and the Environmental Defense Fund both came out with reports this week trying to, you know, draw more clarity on carbon markets, on how they're going to work and to what extent they're going to help reduce the impact of greenhouse gases. 
the EDF's report in, in correspondence with the Woodwell Climate Research published 12 protocols or reviewed 12 protocols that were published on currently used to generate soil carbon credits through carbon sequestration in croplands. Among that report, they kind of uh, identified some key points where carbon Soil carbon protocols take different approaches to measuring, reporting, and verifying net climate impacts and to managing the vital issues of additionally reversal and of additionality, reversal, and performance or permanence. And the variation makes it difficult to ensure climate benefits have been achieved. And then until these variations can be solved, paying farmers to sequester soil carbon will remain an uncertain approach to greenhouse gas mitigation, but can still deliver important benefits for climate resilience, soil health, and water quality. The ISU extension also came out, and one of the things that they concluded or offered for further consideration is that as long as buyers of agricultural credits perceive differences in quality of credits generated through alternative protocols, it can also be expected that some initiatives will gain market share where some might exit to, uh, exit the market. And right now, with all this uncertainty, they're thinking, you know, a lot of people that may even dive into these voluntary programs for carbon may exit that. And that also brings uncertainty when it comes to entering contracts and no formal insurance has actually been made for when it re, when it comes to carbon. And so there's a lot of different groups that are still trying to draw uh, conclusions and make sense of this whole issue. I was actually fortunate to sit down with Kyle Maiman, who is also a soybean and corn producer in Northeast Iowa for writing an article for Trader PhD. And one of the things that we're kind of drawing conclusions is that, you know, there's existing programs to help, you know, maybe coordinate carbon sequestration into, but we're not really seeing that a lot wherein government is trying to, you know, create different ways to get participation. And so there's a lot of different gray areas as to far as to how far we're trying to get people to you know participate in these programs and all of that and it just seems like this is an ever-growing issue where you know the more we find out then we find out more that we don't know and so it just kind of seems like a never-ending cycle well dawson i am all out of news for today how about we get into the markets i'd say we get into them well, Dawson, I haven't been really looking at them all day, but it looks like we had some good news for the grain markets. There's a bunch of green on the screen here. Starting out in corn, the September contract up half a cent to close at 549 and a quarter. The December up two and three quarter cents to close at 549. And soybeans, the August contract up 13 and three quarter cents to close at 1432. The September up three and a quarter cent to close at 1372 and a quarter. The November up one and a half cents to close at 1361. In wheat, the September contract up 14 and a quarter cent to close at 688 and three quarters. The December up 13 and a half to close at 697 and three quarters. Over in livestock, not so much good news here. There's some mixed trade on the screen. In livestock, the August contract up 15 cents to close at 123.7 and a half. The October up 10 cents to close at 128.52 and a half. And the December up two and a half cents to close at 133.50. 
in feeder cattle. The August contract down 52.5 cents to close at 160.17.5. The September down 55 cents to close at 163.45. And the October down 37.5 cents to close at 165.57.5. In lean hogs, the August contract down $1.77.5 to close at 105.70. The October down $3 to close at 89.52.5. And the December down $2.70 to close at $82.15. Closing things out with our class three dairy milk futures, the July down six cents to close at $16.48. The August down 23 cents to close at $16.38. And the September down 16 cents to close at $16.50. With that, Dawson, I'm going to kick it over to our conversation with Jen Sorensen of National Pork Producers Council. We sat down with Jen at World Pork Expo to talk about labor. Well, today is the second day of World Pork Expo, and we are talking to Jen Sorensen, who is president of NPPC. Jen is also chair of the Labor Task Force with NPPC. So, Jen, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. We couldn't be more excited to be hosting a World Pork Expo here in person after a two-year hiatus. So glad to be here. And it's my first World Pork Expo, so it's definitely, I think, a good one to be attending. But we're talking about labor today. And like you said before, we were recording. This is a long-term issue and you're on the NPPC Labor Task Force. So tell us why there was a need to create this task force and why this is going to be a long-term issue. That's right. You know, we repeatedly heard from producers, big, small, and in between, that they were really struggling with finding high-quality labor for their farms and not only just the pork production farms, but our packing plants too, which we have a major stake in. Um, You know, our farms exist in rural America where it's already um, dealing with sparse populations, people moving into urban centers. So struggling to find a quality labor force is is a real issue. And, you know, when you're oversee livestock care, that is every day. That is not a seasonal job. It is every day, 24-7, 365 days a year in those barns doing daily observations, breeding, weaning. It's labor intensive and we need quality, dependable, accountable workforce. Um, you know, so we're NBPC is the advocacy group. We work on policy and we need a labor solution. We've got our eyes set on H2A reform. So the H2A program is a program that our peers use in the vegetable and, and fruit world for bringing in seasonal, uh, help. So seasonal planting and seasonal harvest, but livestock care is every day. And so we were asking for that H2A program to be reformed. So A, there's no cap and B, there's no seasonality piece tied to it. So we can ha- bring in workers uh, into the United States to work on our farms uh, every day and not for uh, harvest and planting seasons. So, Jen, for those who aren't familiar with H-2A visas, you know, myself included, just dive into that a little bit more and how this H-2A visa is a little bit different and, and why you're pushing for this reform so heavily. Right. So the current agriculture visa programs are designed for seasonal agriculture, fruits and vegetables, and they, they're not currently meeting the needs of pork production, which is every day um, throughout livestock agriculture. Uh, 
where we run year-round enterprises. And so, you know, these are folks that come into the United States from countries like Mexico. Uh, they're here legally. They've got egg backgrounds and they're able to help, um, with labor needs for agriculture. You know, agriculture is so important. It's, we provide our nation's food supply and putting the nation's food supply at risk, um, would be extremely problematic. So we need labor to produce the food to feed not only U.S. consumers, but also our export markets as well. Um, and so, yeah, looking at that H-2A program and getting that reformed so livestock producers, in particular pork producers, can tap into that is a top priority. I think it's important to note, I mean, I'm from Texas and so I'm, you know, not too close to the border, but we're still a bordering state with Mexico and a lot of folks do talk about the border war and what we're seeing, um, you know, at least with our relationship with Mexico. So how does this kind of play into that? Do you have any kind of comment on, on the border war and how getting these, you know, immigration workers to come into the U.S. to really be a part of our workforce? Well, you're absolutely right. What tends to happen when we talk to our members of Congress and our administration about our labor needs, it tends to get embroiled in this larger issue of labor reform. And that's why we don't get any movement. So my comment is we need to look at this as a, a, a food supply threat, not having the labor to produce the food that we need. And we need to find a solution for agriculture. We need to find a solution for livestock farmers. And you've mentioned quality workers before, so I kind of want to dive into that a little bit deeper. How can we as an industry advocate for having this quality work? I mean, I was raised, you know, raising pigs. And so I understand that it's a, a full-time job. I think it's 